I'm not sure how this will turn out, but it started with the thought about staying in the moment, which you've done a lot of your podcasts about, not just about seeing what's in front of you, but actually being and doing one thing at a time, rather than doing one thing and thinking about other things that you could be doing, which is a very schizoid kind of way of living. I hesitated to put it in this sequence as episode 22 because I didn't initially see the connection with the rest of it, but I think I now can. We, as you know, I've been looking at issues to do with possible worlds, which you um, weren't very interested in, which is fair enough. Um, And one of those possible worlds consists of, well, if somebody had been born somewhere else, what difference would it have made, etc. But let's take a much more down-to-earth, everyday example, which I've just had illustrated personally in this way. One of the reasons why I've always been in two minds about the boat, and not just this boat, but the other two boats as well, is that rather like owning a second home, which I've also done, although not for very long, you end up being neither one thing nor the other. While you're at home, you're thinking, well, I could be on the boat and maybe even I should be on the boat uh, and worrying about what might be happening to it and what state it might be in, etc., And while you're on the boat, you could be thinking, well, I should be at home doing something else. So, in other words, you end up in a split mind state where you're not either really doing what you're doing or really enjoying what you're doing because you're forever thinking about other things that you could be doing. This clearly connects with uh, the, you know, the very... um, much in the forefront of everyone's minds tennis phenomenon of not staying with the point that you're playing but allowing your mind to wander to what happens if I win or what happens if I lose or what happens if I become US Open champion and of course if you start to allow that and it was quite interesting that one of the commentators started talking about this but then they weren't playing if you allow that then you stop being able to play your mind ceases to be in the job in front of you and starts being in some hypothetical possible world. Okay, now that's the connection. Uh, I don't know to what extent animals of all other animals of all sorts can conceive of possible worlds. You know, I don't know whether... was a very nice sounded like somebody firing a gun not very far away anyway sorry i mean what on earth was that um anyway um if you are in two minds about something Oh, that was a gun.
farmers shooting something or other, I don't know what. Anyway. Sorry, I'm going to have to stop. To alarm you, nothing, nobody got shot, but uh, there were three gunshots very close by and they distracted me, which is a good illustration, if, if I tried to engineer it, of being in two minds and not being able to think about one or the other. Leaving that aside, let's just come back. So, e example tennis, you need to stay in the moment and play the game and the ball and the shot that you're playing and the point that you're playing right now. In order to live life, and not to be in a schizoid state, we need to be able to stay in the location we are doing the job we're doing and not being in a split mind where we're not doing what we're doing properly because we're thinking we could be doing something else and if we were doing that, vice versa. So that is a very unhealthy state to be in how does it connect to possible worlds? Well, funnily enough, between the first recording I just did and this, Hugo was in the garden with two Kongs and he couldn't decide which one he wanted. So he picked up one and then he picked up the other and dropped the first and he picked up the second and dropped the first, picked up the first and dropped the second, backwards and forwards for really quite a long time because he couldn't make a decision between two things. There's a lovely phrase in, I think it's the, I think it's uh, the Book of Kings, where Elijah and the prophets of Baal, you perhaps remember the story where Elijah calls down fire from heaven to make the sacrifice catch fire. And he says something to the prophets of Baal, how long will you go limping on two opinions? And it's a lovely phrase, and that's exactly what this is about. It's about going limping on two opinions, not being able to decide between two things and therefore not doing either of them properly. And I think this is very close to your walk the pod theme of just becoming in the moment, focused on what's in front of you, noticing what's in front of you and shutting out all the distractions and the, the alternative worlds that our minds fill with all too easily. And you won't remember this, I don't think, because you were far too young, but Grandma Eileen had in her house, and I regret that we, I don't still have it because I've often thought of it, uh, pottery thing, a blue pottery, Devon, Devonshire pottery jug with the, the proverb on it, better do one thing than dream all things. And all of this is of a piece with the possible world issue. I know you're not interested in it as an abstract philosophical question, but I do think that it's of interest in terms of daily living that our ability to imagine alternative worlds, other possibilities, uh, what might have beens, connects with Aslan as well, is very much amplified by the availability of language. And 
Interestingly, thinking about dogs or other any animal that doesn't have language, I wonder to what extent they can conceive of alternative worlds. Well, they certainly can to some extent, because, for example, they get very excited at the possibility that they might play ball. So even though they don't articulate it linguistically, they can see that there is a scenario, a world, a possible world, where they would be playing ball rather than not playing ball, and they clearly prefer it because they get very excited. They will go up to where the balls are and try and get them out or try and persuade you to get them out or whatever it might be. So it is not just a linguistic possibility, but it is enormously enhanced by a linguistic possibility. Now, a secondary question is, can we invent possible worlds other than on the basis of experience? Uh, as I mentioned a few episodes back, we've been looking at some stuff on Netflix, courtesy of Hannah, who had a spare subscription. And it's very, some of it's dreadful. But what, what's particularly amusing about it is that if you go into the science fantasy world or any imaginary world, and all of these are imaginary worlds, aren't they, if they're in an entertainment scenario, uh, how, no matter how exotic the setting might be, whether it's Star Trek, Star Wars, or some other futuristic thing uh, like Another Life, which is pretty awful, uh, the scenarios that are played out in front of you as part of this entertainment are terribly derivative. They are all examples of things that everyday life throws up. So you simply translate them into a, a more interesting setting. But in the end, I mean, no Hollywood movie can resist the temptation to end with fisticuffs or some kind of shoot 'em up and so they're essentially replaying the Wild West scenario, only in space shoot, spaceships and spacesuits and using phasers instead of Colt 45s. And life is like that. Um, philosophically, there's an interesting question, uh, and you, I'm sure you'll have come across this. Can you imagine a new colour? Well, no, you can't imagine a new colour. Uh, you might think that you can, but actually you only can imagine variations on the colours that we see. And if somebody were to pretend or claim, perhaps is a, more, a, a less loaded term, if someone were to claim to be imagining a new colour, how on earth would they convey to someone else what they thought it looked like? I don't think they could. Um, so... Can you imagine a different world or can you only bolt together the bits of the world that you know in novel ways, which is, of course, just what we do with language. So even if you're Charles Dickens or um, A. Van Vogt or Isaac Asimov or Chekhov or Tolstoy, and it doesn't matter what language you're writing in, you can only use the language that's been developed by your culture because nobody will understand it. Otherwise, you can, you can invent new words, but even they have to be connected in an intelligible way to something that went before, otherwise nobody can understand them. So 
your possible worlds are always going to be framed by and constructed out of the worlds that you have experienced. And the world you haven't experienced, you know, can a dog imagine a game it's never played? I think not, is the answer. Can we imagine a scenario we've never experienced? Well, only to the extent that we can identify with something that someone presents to us and we can kind of see how it might work. Um, I mean, if you really want to really want to get into the the realms of the absurd, just try something like the series called Timeless about people going back in time and changing the past in such a way that it changes the future that they go back to. But the people in that future don't remember the past as being any different, except that the people who've gone back do remember it. I mean, it's just absurd. Anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there either. But let's let's go back to the, the main event here which is when we allow ourselves, and recently I've been doing this quite a lot, and it's kind of a connect, it's connected to the retirement thing where you no longer have a trajectory mapped out for you, uh, but you have to make one for yourself. Uh, If you're in work, and this goes for you and it went for me when I was in permanent work, the day sort of structures itself. Things happen and you have to deal with them. Things need to be dealt with and so you make the time to to deal with them. Once that structure isn't there while you're unemployed or retired, then you have all sorts of choices. You have so many choices that you become like Hugo with his two Kongs and can't decide which of them to do. I can be at home or I could be on the boat. When I'm on the boat, I could be at home. So your possible worlds open up in front of you in far more variety when you no longer have the constraints that the real normal lives of most people impose upon them. That's an example, isn't it, of having too much freedom. It isn't that we don't want any freedom at all, but if you have too much freedom, too many possible worlds, then you not only fall between two stools, you could fall between 52 stools, because there there are so many things that you could possibly do that you end up not doing any of them. And... That also raises an interesting question, you know, if you take someone like Emma Raducanu, how on earth do you decide that you so want to play tennis, that you want to hit hundreds of thousands of tennis balls a year and do all the fitness work and all the other stuff that goes with it? How do you decide that for yourself or do circumstances decide it for you? Either because you're talented at it or because you have parents who push you or where does the freedom, where does the relationship between freedom, self-determination, autonomy, and just doing something because you're good at it lie? And although I think this is a fiction, one of the things that I have noticed is that there are people who at least apparently, I wouldn't want to say this is real, that's the fictional bit, uh, apparently are much more talented in one dimension than they are in others and it makes it easier to do that 
because you're not forever in a position where you say, well, I'm doing this, but I could just as easily do that, or I could, and so on and so on. Your possible worlds opening up, opening up in front of you in such a way that you can't do any of them or don't do any of them properly comes back to the centipede quote that I've used on here before. So, the upshot of all this is that I do think that there are some very interesting questions about the importance of doing one thing rather than dreaming all things or even dreaming of another thing that you could be doing. I think that there's an interesting connection with how we become uh, less competent and even incompetent when we become self-conscious so if we start thinking about what we're doing over-consciously, overthinking it, we can fall over the centipede story again. We can become so aware of all the possibilities we are not enacting, not choosing, not capitalizing on, that we don't do anything at all, properly at any rate, or even the things that we are doing we find dissatisfac unsatisfactory because we are doing them reluctantly almost. We're thinking, yeah, this is really going very well, but I could be doing something else. And just as the, 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 the final bit of this is to pick up on something else you've said, we shouldn't be deciding, going back to the people who are, who are really good at something, we shouldn't be deciding what to do on the basis of a comparison with how well other people can do it. And my little example of this is that I spent much of yesterday varnishing the rails and the surrounds of the roof on the boat, which I had put off doing for a long time because I knew that I wouldn't make as good a job of it as a professional but the difference was that if I'd got a professional to do it, it would have cost me hundreds of pounds. And the work that I did, although it wasn't as good as that would have been, didn't really cost me very much at all. That was actually quite enjoyable. So there again, you see, you can say, shall I do this? If I do this less than perfectly or less than professionally or less well than somebody who could do it, but would charge me or would just be better at it or who isn't even available. Shall I do this despite not being very good at it? Or shall I not do it at all? Or shall I uh, sublet it or sub, you know, send it out to somebody else to do, subcontract it to somebody else? And in that range of choices, it's terribly easy not to do anything to be immobilized by freedom and i think that's a really interesting idea because i think that the idea that we that we want to be free is very attractive but i think that the notion that we can be too free we can have too little constraint upon us is very debilitating and going as you have done, and, and I'm, as I've said before, I'm to some extent struggling still with, 
either having a job and then not having a job where the framework is lost or going from not having a job where you don't have a framework and then going to a job where you do and put it in, sorry, this just occurs to me, but put it in the context of lockdown. In lockdown, no choices are to be made. You're not doing anything, but you're not allowed to do anything, so you don't have any decisions. But as soon as the lockdown phenomenon ceases, as soon as we become free to do more or less what we were able to do before, then all these indecisions, all these alternatives, all these possible worlds that can in their multiplicity be so debilitating suddenly come back to bite us. And I think that's something that is really worth thinking about, and not just by you and me, but I think generally, how much freedom is good for us? And how do we do one thing's thing rather than dream all things? And I do think, at the risk of again being boring, that that's got something to do with the way we make sense of the world. And therefore a kind of sense we need to unmake where we are incapacitated by it.